Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're telling the story of Elephant Six and the bands like Neutral Milk Hotel and Apples in Stereo with author Adam Clare. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, we have new albums by Jack White and Sharon Van Etten to review. When you take out the figures and you pull all the triggers, well, you're taking me back. You're taking me back when you listen to Mystics as you lay at your bed. You're taking me back You're taking me back That is a little bit of Taking Me Back The first track and lead single Of Fear of the Dawn The fourth solo album, Greg, by Jack White Mr. Jack White, uh, since uh, 1996 With his wife, Meg Never his sister, although that was the mythology Hmm. With the White Stripes, really one of the defining bands of the early 2000s, that uh, garage punk take on the blues. Not where he started. Uh, Detroit musician uh, was a drummer for Goober and the Peas, <laughs> yeah, kind of right. a jokey old country band. And since then, keeping track of Jack White has been, uh, uh, it could be a full-time job. Uh, whether we're talking White Stripes, then they came to an end. His solo career, working with people like the Raconteurs and Dead Weather, where he shared vocals in both of those bands, producing artists, including the great Loretta Lynn, launching the Third Man Empire, uh, record store, record label, publishing arm, boutique outlets, uh, cool, cool record stores and performance spaces in Nashville and in, uh, in his native Detroit. And in between making solo albums, Uh, he's been on tour now, and I just have to say, what a cool move. He drops to his knee, proposes to uh, longtime girlfriend Olivia Jean of the garage goth Black Bells, (laughs) and then marries her on stage in the (laughs) middle of a concert. Um, This fourth solo album, uh, people have been waiting for it. People have been talking about it. We're going to play a track from it, and we'll come back and give our reviews. This is What's the Trick from Jack White's Fear of the Dawn. Two gentlemen of elegant appearance in a state of bustitude. I give them coffee-colored crystals. That'll change their attitude. I'm using appropriate confession for my inappropriate confessions for someone I guess who might need it more. I don't even know what I'm doing it for. That is What's the Trick from the new Jack White album, Fear of the Dawn, uh, one of two albums he's supposed to have out this year. Prolific he's being. Well, yeah, nobody had anything to do, you know. I mean, he's, and he owns recording studios. I might as well spend some time during COVID there. Yes. So uh, apparently he's uh, fascinated with the, this concept of uh, Fear of the Dark, right, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, occupies this album. He uh, came across this Greek term, eosophobia. A term for dreading the dawn, a morbid fear of dawn or daylight. So Mm. he structured a dozen tracks around this, including Eosophobia as a a 
uh, title for four of the songs, inclu- mm. included in the title of four of the songs. So right away you go, this is Jack White's art rock record, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it yeah, is. Yeah. It's, it's an art rock record. When I listened to this record multiple times, I, I got the sense that Jack has been spending a lot of time in a dark room by himself going freaking crazy and trying to get every idea he ever came up with into these songs. So rather than the minimalist approach of, say, the White Stripes, which, you know, great achievement, uh, as a solo artist, I think he's been sort of fishing around in the dark looking for uh, things to excite him. And I think he goes overboard with this record. Uh, Mm -hmm. When in doubt, add more. That seems to be the Jack White philosophy as a solo artist. I I miss the days when he was just attacking you uh, with straight-on rock and roll. I think there's moments of that on this record where it sounds absolutely stupendous. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, a a, a song like That Was Then, This Is Now, Mm. where uh, the approach that, you know, he's got that manic white stripes attack, but mixing in these sort of jagged, jazzy inter- interjections that spice it up a little bit. That's cool. But, I, man, that track, Heidi Ho, you, you know, know, you don't Cap like it, huh? Calloway update. He's sampling Cap Calloway. Wasting Q-tip from A Tribe Called Quest. I mean, that just sounds to me like uh, a total gimmick gone grossly awry. It's gimmicky, superficial. I could say the same thing about Into the Twilight. You know, the scary movie soundtrack that he created. You know, yeah, and he's, he's you know, always he's had an affinity for the goth. Throwing in a little William Burroughs in there because, you know, it's a cut-up record, Jim. Don't you know all these different things, collage-type uh, items being thrown together? I, I really think this is a, a misstep for White. It, it's a difficult record to listen to uh, beginning to end. There are a few really stunning tracks on it, and there's we, just a few that, are, that rank with the lowest of the low on the Jack White uh, discography. Hey, you're just harsh and my mellow, man. You, I don't know why you're so grouchy. <laughs> Look, I think that his last solo album, Boarding House Reach in 2018, that was the I'm going to be experimental for the sake of being experimental record. I think on this record, you know, people have been trying to put him into a narrow role for his uh, entire career, you know, and and he has always been musically voracious and uh, interested in experimenting, both with uh, the sounds and the images. You know, he's got blue hair now. (laughs) You know, he's a conceptualist, Greg. I think he was having fun during lockdown in the recording studio with this record. Not everything works uh, super successfully, but as far as uh, I'm going to test the limits of myself and my audience, it's much more successful Fear of the Dawn than Boarding House Reach. Um, And I think the key to understanding it is the last song on the album, Shedding My Velvet. And he's talking about velvet in the sense of uh, uh, deer antlers. There's a great piece in The New Yorker uh, recently about elk, elks, you know, shed their <laughs> antlers and how much money uh, these antlers are worth, right? And um, they, they're covered with that kind of soft velvet. And, and he sings, uh, can't you see, this is the real world. The 
real me is somebody who's always just messing around and experimenting and trying on new things. We should know this by now. Between the raconteurs and dead weather, uh, there are going to be people who are never going to want him to do anything other than what he did in The White Stripes, and I'm not one of them. Uh, I'm not saying a perfect album, but I'm saying it makes me happy. is I'll Try from the new Sharon Van Etten album, We've Been Going About This All Wrong. Can anybody say pandemic album under your <laughs> You know, it's, it's, <laughs> your breath? do you yeah. think people are getting frustrated with us for saying... Uh, it seems like a lot of... Three well, out of four records. Was, it, yeah. It, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we'll get to that. that we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But this is our sixth studio album. Sharon's had a career dating back to 2009. I distinct, have distinct memory of her. This tiny figure going mm-hmm. up on the stage at the Pitchfork Music Festival in Chicago with a guitar and uh, opening act, terrible slot for anybody, right? People yeah. are just getting to the show. And she does this amazing set. And the career has just blossomed um, since then. Um, what was in- interesting about her career, in addition to the, you know, the, the movement on the record, just developing as an artist and a producer and a multi-instrumentalist and a songwriter, all along, she's taken these little hiatuses. There was a point there where mm-hmm. she was doing uh, acting roles, and uh, she was a regular on the OA, that science fiction drama on Netflix, and uh, did a did a role in Twin Peaks on the Showtime series. She mm-hmm. she wrote a score for a Catherine Diekman movie. She she took college courses in mental health counseling. That is something yep. that she wants to explore more deeply in her life. Um, she also uh, had a child with her uh, musician manager, Zeke Hutchins, in 2017. So a lot on her plate. Meanwhile, while uh, after the ra- last record came out, Remind Me Tomorrow in 2019, great record, had that song 17 on it, mm-hmm. which I think was one of the anthems of that year. Collaborations with The National, Deep Sea Divers, Juju, Super Chunk, Angel Olsen, and now this new record. Uh, we've been going about this all wrong. Here's a track from it. We're going to review it. It's called Anything from Sharon Van Etten on Sound Opinions. That is Sharon Van Etten with anything from the new album, We've Been Going About This All Wrong. Um, you know, Greg, I think this is, a, I'll, I'll just, I won't bury my lead, as they say in the journo trade. Uh, this is my favorite Sharon Van Etten album, instantly. Uh, operatic is the word that mm. keeps coming to me, not in terms of uh, melodramatic uh, singing or, or emoting, but just the scope and ambition of both the music and the lyrics. Sharon has said, talk about concept albums, she wanted to approach this record differently uh, and ask the questions that we ask ourselves when we think the world is ending, right? Mm. And I think the key to understanding both music and lyrics are two covers 
that are deeper in her catalog, right? She, uh, for The Man in the High Castle, that that fictitious uh, series about uh, what if the Nazis won, she had covered It's the End of the World, Mm -hmm. right? And I think, you know, the other cover of uh, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding that Mm. she did. So that mix of um, resignation, of coming to the end and being uh, scared that everything you know uh, is now done with, hence the pandemic reference, uh, but also uh, in the face of all odds or logic, the sort of optimism uh, represented by what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding, the way this album builds, uh, and two tracks about darkness. You were talking about, what was that word you just taught me? Erosophobia, the enosophobia, the, the, the Jack White's fascination with, uh, with the dark. Darkness fades and darkish, uh, which are kind of spaced strategically throughout the album. It's been a while since I held you close Been a while since we've touched Being sort of the quietest, most intimate songs but the way the others build in terms of the arrangements, the instrumentation, her voice, but retain the same sense of intimacy as if she is whispering to you, mm-hmm. right? The way she was at that first Pitchfork performance, 10,000 people soaking in the sun, paying no attention to the opening act at two in the afternoon, and she demanded the attention. Absolutely. And, uh, this is an album as an album. I, it, it struck me, I take a lot of notes when I'm listening to records usually, and then I just put the notes down and said, let's listen to this record mm-hmm. beginning to end. It's really an, an amazing achievement. I, I think it's a, a beautiful record. The way she uses those textures, you're absolutely right, the production is extremely inventive. It goes from a whisper to a... In almost a Baroque kind of majesty. Or, orchestral you know, cataclysm, and, yes. And back again. And it's never, it never stays in that one place. So the ability, the, the feel for drama uh, in the way the music, the arrangements is, is there. You know, the, those tribal drums, the way that she mm-hmm. uses synthesizers. Uh, her voice, I mean, she's also orchestrating her voice beautifully. In the last track on the record, you almost have like a, a choir of uh, Sharon Bettenetton's uh, interacting with yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah. If there's a theme to this record, it's hang in there. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, we, we're, we're not really joking about it, but there are a lot of records that talk about the isolation and loneliness of, of the pandemic, and this record does. It, and it also strikes me as a very adult record. It's about adult relationships. It's about, it's about being a mom. Mm-hmm. It's about where am I in, in you know, the middle of my life in, in, in terms of a career. Stuff that anybody could relate to. Um, and, and just the beauty of the record. As I said, when I think about this record... Um, that song, Headspace, this sort of massive industrial strength kind of dream slash nightmare, yeah. and the way it moves from that into comeback.
where she's talking about this relationship, you know, in a very plaintive terms. Um, it, it just, it, that to me, sonically, that encapsulates everything this record's about. And, and you know, what a tremendous achievement. It's just, uh, it just blows me away. I think there's a lot of good Sharon Bennett records, but you may be right. This may, you know, this, this could very well be the best of her career. And that's really saying something. Ah, uh, you ain't kidding. So that's what we thought. Very enthusiastic endorsements of the Sharon Van Etten record. We split pretty dramatically on the Jack White record. We, we, want we to diverge. Hear, yes. yes, we do. Uh, but we want to hear from you. What, what do you think as our listeners? What of these records? Give us a review. Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, we're going to talk Neutral Milk Hotel and all things Elephant Six with author Adam Clare. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we are back. Endless, endless, a lo-fi history of the Elephant Six mystery is author Adam Clare's first book, and it's a doozy, Mr. Cott. Through countless interviews and years of living with and amongst the members of the Elephant Six Collective in Athens, Georgia, and elsewhere, Claire has wrestled a coherent narrative out of this sprawling art project, and I'm so glad that this book exists, because this is a scene that never has been completely understood, the stories have never been told, and the legacy just seems to grow more every year. Absolutely, Jim. The, the core Elephant Six bands, uh, Apples and Stereo, Olivia, Tremor Control, and Neutral Milk Hotel, uh, were, you know, they were a breath of fresh air in the late 90s music industry. I, I, you know, there was a lot of sense that music was losing that sort of initial youthful enthusiasm that made it so uh, essential in our lives in yeah, the 70s and 80s the and 90s. The alternative scene had burned out, and That's right. Kurt Cobain was dead, and Limp Biscuit and Britney Spears were in the ascendance, and who? what has indie rock got to say anymore? And then, and then these guys come along, and we're, we're talking to them and listening to their records and thinking, thinking there's, there's, there's life yet in this yeah, art form. Yeah. And uh, I'm really glad that Adam Clare, uh, you know, took, he took a long time to do this book right. Yeah, well, it's not easy to track those guys down or get them to talk. Uh, I was not surprised that it had taken him, uh, I thought, four years to write the book, but I quickly learned I was way underestimating that. <laughs> uh, I was actually about 13 years of my life. If 13 I, years! <laughs> you know, um, you know it, it fits and starts for sure. But um, yeah. so it, the, the kind of genesis of it goes back to, I guess, when I was still in college. I had discovered these bands myself when I was in high school, uh, probably around... 2001, 2002. And then when I got to college a few years later, um, I was covering music for my school paper. And just from interviewing bands and musicians every week, started to sort of discover that, you know, the influence of the Elephant Six was a lot bigger than I had really given it credit for. It felt like every artist that I talked to, regardless of what genre or style they were themselves making, they were citing Neutral Milk Hotel or the Elephant Six as a whole or, or the Olivia Trumpet Control or the Apples of Stereo or of Montreal. Uh, as an influence. Um, and yeah. so it started to kind of reveal itself as this sort of, uh, you know, your favorite band's favorite band sort of thing. Um, you know, there's that old joke about the Velvet Underground about, you know, only so many people bought the first record, but they all started a band. And I think something similar is going on here. Then I graduated college in 2009 with a degree in journalism, which might as well have been phrenology or Esperanto or some yeah. other... <laughs> How to put horseshoes on horses. Exactly, yes. yeah. After about six months of living at my mom's house and working a job I didn't really like, packed up my stuff, moved down to Athens and started to work on this kind of earnestly, tried to sort of immerse myself in the community down there because what, what I'd yeah. heard from a few of them was a number of people had tried this before, 
and gave up eventually or yeah. pretty quickly because even for psychedelic musicians, uh, they are a little bit uh, <laughs> a little bit all over the place. It um, it's it's true. It's true. Yeah. You know, uh, I love Athens, but the Elephant Six story. We have a collective of really freaky artistic musicians to, to even call them musicians seems limiting because they are mm -hmm. multimedia artists one mm -hmm. and all who first begin to meet in grade school in ruston louisiana i was covering these bands in their heyday initially hooked in by olivia tremor control It is nowhere near New Orleans or any center of civilization. There's a big engineering school, and these are all the kids. Many of them are kids of the professors, right? Mm -hmm. And they take over the radio station, and they discover these old records by Pink Floyd and the Incredible String Band, and most notably Pet Sounds and various bootlegs of Smile, which become their sacred texts. So for people who don't know Elephant Six, tell us, what happens there, and then how everything shifts to Athens. Yeah, so so like you said, Ruston, Louisiana is is somewhat remote, but it's also a college town. And so what you what you have there is isolation to some extent, but you also have this very fertile intellectual community there. And you have yeah. all kinds of stuff passing through town. It had a pretty solid art school, so a lot of the artsy kids from around the state and around just really around the south end up there. Um and like you said, a lot of these were the children of professors for the kind of core group of the Elephant Six, uh, which would I would say from the Rustin folks would be Robert Schneider of the Apples and Stereo, Jeff Mangum of Nutramilk Hotel, Bill Doss and Will Cullen Hart from the Olivia Trimber Control. Yeah. Uh, you know, four of the, I guess, six real founders of the collective. Um, they all grew up together. Uh, Jeff and Robert became friends in, in second grade. Uh, Will kind of worked his way in around middle school and, and Bill Doss not, not long after that. And, and they were all kids who, you know, they weren't, they weren't total outcasts, but they didn't really enjoy the things that their classmates enjoy. They didn't like hunting. They didn't like football. They wanted to sit in their bedroom and make music um, and listen to yeah. Pink Floyd and listen to hardcore punk and listen to Ornette Coleman and, and free jazz and all, and just all kinds of stuff that they weren't able to, really access. Um, there wasn't even really a record store in Ruston. They had to go to Monroe or Shreveport to, to buy records. And so music took on this very sacred quality for them. It became a source of salvation, really, a way for them to connect with people when they felt kind of alienated. It, it allowed them all a path out of Ruston because I don't think any of them really wanted to stay at Ruston. Certainly none of them ever really did. Yeah. Um, they all they all left shortly after high school. I love the story. I didn't know this one. Uh, they bonded on Cheap Trick, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the first real rock concert that um, that Jeff and Robert went to when they were in middle school, um, and I believe it was Will Hart's maybe second or third concert ever, uh, Cheap yeah. Trick was playing on the Louisiana Tech campus. The three of them went. A guitar pick ended up on the floor uh, right in front of them. Uh, Will and Robert fought over it. Robert brought that pick back home with him. He still has it to this day. He carries around in his wallet. Rick um, Nielsen's but, guitar picks are legendary, man. They, yeah. They're, they're like, the, talk about Johnny Appleseed. He used to throw <laughs> those things around. He, used, he, had a, he has a whole row of them on his, on his microphone yeah. stand. Okay. And every, it's like he's spreading the gospel. And I, I, I thought it was just endearing that these guys embrace that it, it, to its fullest extent. Their passion for this stuff you read that and you realize what true believers these guys were mm -hmm. in such a cynical time. This is incredibly cynical 
era, you know, the era of irony was upon us, all that stuff. Well, we have to underscore, yeah, they yeah. followed, you know, the 90s, the major labels had decimated the music scene in the 90s, signing everybody, yeah. trying to make superstars, you know, and you have Smashing Pumpkins, and you have mm. Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, everybody was going to be the next Nirvana. And then they move on instantly to both Rap Rock, Limp Bizkit, and NSYNC and Britney Spears, right? And yeah. all of that is decimated. That's why you couldn't get anybody to to go cover this band because nobody right. cared nobody about that came, stuff. Well, you, you know, know, Spin was still yeah. nominally covering that, yeah. but nobody would send me to Rustin. Yeah. Anyway, Rock was dead, but mm -hmm. it wasn't. Yeah. Not with guys like that. Yeah, and I think the the sincerity of it really does uh, carry through. You uh, know, in, in a time period like even the musicians themselves who have staying power, the the Kurt Cobains, the Stephen Malkmuses, you know, irony and cynicism were kind of the dominant aesthetics, and so I think it was just really. Yeah in some ways radical to be so sincere, so earnest and so positive. Um, and just well, be... you put it beautifully in what I think is the thesis of your entire book. It's in the introduction. You write the music of elephant six has endured not because of its influence, but in spite of it standing tall above countless corporatized derivations, exactly because of how humble it is. These guys never wanted to be rock stars. They didn't even necessarily want to make a living playing music. They wanted to create and inspire, entertain their friends, and they wanted to live outside the the you know the norms of society, mm. as Patti Smith once yeah. put it. This is the era where everybody creates, and they did, and then they stopped. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you know the music industry has this way of sanding off the corners of, of anything that it's that it's co-opting, and so that's how you end up going from. Nirvana to Nickelback and Creed in a few years ago and, yeah, and it's yeah. how you go from it's how you go from Neutral Milk Hotel to you know Mumford and Sons or any other uh, yeah. band like that the reason that that the Elephant Six stuff does endure is because it's not something you can really sand down in that way you lose like the corners are the whole part of it the whole the whole thing um, without the corners it's something totally different and the only way to really experience it is to go back to the source. Well, yeah, you you do get stuff like Mumford and Sons, but you also get Arcade Fire. Sure, there yeah. is no Arcade Fire without oh, Elephant Six. Yeah, um, I mean, well, uh, when Butler had has mentioned before that the reason that Arcade Fire signed with Merge was because of Neutral Book Hotel. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea too of the collective, I think, is so. Um, that's part of the story that is so uh, inspiring to a lot of people. We're going to do it with our friends. It's almost like we're going to create this clubhouse for music. And it was kind of beyond geography because at a certain point they were no longer all in Ruston. They were scattered all over the Colorado, country. Colorado, Athens, Georgia. So how did that work out? How did that, you know, idea evolve? I mean, it seems so idealistic, so like impossible. Like that's, that's the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard that we're all going to do this together and we don't even live within thousands of miles of each other. And this is pre-internet era, too. Let's understand that, right? Right, yeah. So it wasn't um, as easy then. I don't think at any point there was ever really any sort of ambition toward success in any, in, in any way that you would define it in terms of, you know, reaching a big audience or making a lot of money or even necessarily making, you know, classic records that a number of them did. It was just about, it really was about friendship. It was about, um, you know, spending time together and impressing each other. And I think that that kind of productive rivalry that sort of competition that they all felt with each other to impress one another was really a sustaining creative force and so when the elephant six started kind of formally um would have been like 92 93 this was after most of them had not most of them but not all of them had left rustin you had a few of them end up in athens you had robert out in denver and some folks he met out there uh, i think jeff had 
he was always all over the place. I think he was probably in Seattle or Athens or maybe Denver at this point, but not really setting down roots anywhere. When Robert got to Denver, uh, he met a lot of folks, but crucially, he met um, Jim McIntyre and Hillary Sidney, who were with Robert, founding members of the Apples and Stereo. Um, and they were also founding members of the Elephant Six Collective. So the six of them kind of conceived of this idea as, first and foremost, a record label. They were really inspired by K Records. They were inspired by Flying Nun. They were inspired by all these, you know, kind of little DIY indie labels that were still able to produce some really amazing stuff. And, you know, Robert especially was inspired by Capitol Records and some other kind of more major operations and, and trying to sort of take some of that in, in his very humble, modest way. Very quickly, within probably a year or two, the flagship bands of the collective, namely Neutral Milk Hotel, Apples and Stereo, Olivia Tremper Control, had all signed with other indie labels and had kind of had that part taken care of. And so what it sort of transformed into at that point was more of a... I don't know, maybe a club. <laughs> I've heard it described as yeah. a fraternity, as a symposium, as a as a brand, as a logo, as just a logo. And, you know, it's the term itself is in some ways borderline meaningless, but also something that a number of people have devoted their entire lives to. And so that amorphousness of it, I think, is really captivating to people. Um, there's a mysteriousness to it, but there's also this capaciousness to it. It can really whatever whatever you want it to be, it can be that. Coming up, we're going to continue our conversation about Elephant Six, including why Neutral Milk Hotel never made another album after In the Airplane Over the Sea. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. We're talking with Adam Clare about his book on the Elephant Six Collective. He's explaining how a group of childhood friends came up with the idea of Elephant Six. Even when they were teenagers just making, you know, cassette recordings in their bedrooms, um... They all liked to brand those cassettes. Different names on every single one of them. I think Will Will Hart specifically was kind of known for a wide variety of, of names on these cassettes. He's 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 the one who sort of coined Elephant Six, but you know, some of his cassettes there was Amoeba Kite, which had a picture of a guy flying a kite that was shaped like an amoeba. He had the Always Red Society. He had <laughs> of course. Uh, all these different... A lot of drugs were involved, apparently. All these various kind of surrealist sort of sort of ideas um and then you know they sort of decided like let's let's do this a little bit more professionally and by that i mean instead of making cassettes for just them they would maybe try to find a dozen or two dozen other people who might want to hear it too um yeah, yeah. robert asked will you know what should we call it will just you know in, in sort of uh surrealist improvisation came up with elephant six on the spot sort of kind of inspired by the this uh, Max Ernst surrealist painting called the, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but um, I believe it's the Elephant Celebs. He didn't know how to pronounce that either. So he uh, William, William Cullen Hart uh, <laughs> yeah. said when he was talking to you, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Right. Yeah. One of the things I was struck by is I wonder how much their perspectives have changed now, 30 odd years on. Because, you know, I interviewed Bill Doss and William Cullen Hart when Dusk at Cubist Castle came out, you know, and I talked to Robert uh, Schneider when the first Apples in Stereo. I don't think I talked to Jeff Mangum. I met him briefly when I saw them play. You know, they didn't strike me as, as anti-capitalist and do-it-yourself 
devoted, uh, you know, uh, I mean, they seemed like they were bands that wanted to find an audience. And yet, one of the things you write in your book is, uh, you know, money, they, they not only uh, didn't care about it, they actively rejected both money and fame. They saw that as something that would mm. kill their spark of creativity. And, and I, I swear... I don't remember that being part of the agenda. I remember them telling me really good stories. And, you know, Hart and, and, and Doss telling me, you know, uh, we put Elephant Six cartoon on every cassette we made. And, I mean, they, they seemed to want their story out there. Nobody else was telling it. I was happy to do it. A handful of other journalists. Do you think that was always really the case? Or did they turn on it once they got inside of the touring grind, the recording grind? Yeah, I think I think there's there's... Elements of both of those, I think. When when Kurt Cobain and Nirvana sort of hit the mainstream, I think a lot of these guys looked at them as a really positive role model. Um, it was they looked at Kurt as someone someone like them, someone who was from this you know kind of uh, semi rural small town, and here was this artsy weirdo who you know had these tightly held artistic principles that he was able to or at least tried to hold on to as the music industry tried to squeeze it out of him and so i think when when nevermind broke out um i think they looked at kurt as like okay th this is an example of someone who will not let the music industry destroy his his artistic ideals and principles and so mm -hmm. if he can do it we can do it too and so when when kurt passed away they looked at that uh at least at the time as oh no, uh, look what fame did to him. It's going to do the same to us. And so we need to, you know, be a little bit more, more cautious about this. Um, the other, the other kind of founding, founding myth of this whole collective really is, is Brian Wilson and smile, which I think they look at. Yeah. Um, and again, this is, this is not necessarily the most accurate analysis and assessment of it, but I think they looked at that as this record and fame and success more generally broke Brian Wilson's brain and destroyed him. And if we do things differently, we can at least have the same artistic ambitions and maybe even the same sort of artistic success. But we need to be very, very careful about not letting that destroy us. I, I agree with you. I, I, I was a huge fan of On Avery Island. And I talked to him around that time several times. I saw him on tour uh, later and reconnected with him a couple of times he was a very down-to-earth guy very humble very nice huge he would hug people i think he hugged i think you mentioned that in your book they're all huggers in that scene which is very endearing i'm looking back at this interview i did with him there's a reason why people listen to music there there's a reason why if you're bored you just may take 12 bucks and spend it on a record i do that a lot i bring a record home and it connects with me like nothing else in my ideal situation somebody will do that with my record. And it's, it's really all about that connection. Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways, he was just looking to connect with people. Then I think they kind of realized, well, wait a minute, this is becoming something else. Now we're starting to get, people want to turn, turn us into rock stars. And they were, yeah. I think Jeff just, that's why Jeff walked away all those years, you know? Yeah, and I think uh, when Jeff first got into music, um, and certainly when he was working with Robert and the rest of the band to make uh, In the Airplane Over the Sea, and even even with Avery Island to some extent, he had some very ambitious ideas about what music can do for people and what music can do for the world. Um, that he, he saw a lot of pain and a lot of just awful stuff in the world. And I think he felt that through music, he could, he could solve at least some of that. And then when the album mm -hmm. came out, even as, as impactful as it was 
at the time, and certainly more so as time has gone by, I think he became a little bit disillusioned with that idea. Uh, the idea that music can really solve the like big weighty problems that we deal with on earth <laughs> as human beings mm-hmm, trying, yeah. to, <laughs> trying to not kill each other. Something that really, really sticks out about Aeroplane more so than really any other record in the Elephant Six catalog is... In spite of how abstract the lyrics are, there is a unmistakable, I think, emotional heft to it. result of that is that when people listen to it they project their own trauma their own grief onto the record because um, they don't know exactly what jeff is singing about but they know that this is a guy who has who has felt some pain this is a very empathetic person we talk a lot about parasocial relationships now with with social media and reality tv and things like that but you know this is obviously not an entirely new concept and for jeff what that meant was all of these people who connected so deeply to this record would come up to him before or after a show or even if he was just hanging out somewhere and unload all of their trauma onto him and being an an empathetic person i think he took that on his shoulders as much as he could until his knees just kind of buckled underneath of him couldn't do it that was you know i think what got people about the record was that he was just bearing it all remember that era 1998 who's making records like that that sounded like that i mean it was this clean sounding techno production and boy bands and you know even rock was becoming this hugely corporatized thing and then you got this guy you know <laughs> coming out there just you know pouring his heart out in a way that uh, nobody else was doing quite in that explicit way you know it's totally understandable why this guy went away you no know, well I, you, know, you it, know i i listened to it again this morning and it it uh, completely wrecked me again for the hundredth time yeah. <laughs> i'm in a mess today we need to point out 13 years tremendous effort on your part interviewing people as you say in the book who were you know happy to talk about hating the industry happy to talk about the magic of jeff but you never got the great white whale you never talked to jeff i've talked to jeff i would say quite a bit especially over the last year or so um unfortunately that's all you know off the record and on background and stuff like that and you right. know I, I never got him for the book exactly yeah so i i you know i i respect his privacy i respect i uh, respect his reasons for wanting that privacy um even his closest friends are pretty cagey about details about him you know i think because he is so you know set on 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 his private life at this point is his friends and his collaborators and colleagues want to be respectful of that they would get very, very shy when start talking about themselves, um, somewhat with biographical details, but even more so with the more qualitative stuff. Like they're never, none of them are going to tell you this was a great record or anything like that. It's just, you know, we mm. just were hanging out and making music. The luxury of having spent 13 years working on this, including about three years living in Athens, a lot of that time renting a room from Will Cullen Hart and his wife um, and spending a lot of time there and really just hanging out with people and immersing myself and embedding myself. There is a... I guess, extra textual quality that I hope comes through. What was compelling to me about it was the mystery. This is my own 
sort of supposition, but um, I think that's part of why Jeff has been so reclusive and so uh, unwilling to talk about it is because he sees how meaningful it is to people and he doesn't want to destroy that either. And yeah, so, and anything he says can only ruin that. Exactly. Well, you make the observation that there's the apples in stereo uh, of Robert and Hillary, his ex-wife, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's, you know, uh, the apples after Hillary. Bill Doss is dead, sadly. Mm-hmm. And so we won't see Olivia Tremor control because it has to be those two guys. Mm-hmm. That was really a Lennon and McCartney situation. Mm-hmm. And then ironically, the most reclusive, mysterious of them all, uh, Jeff Mangum, does come back with Neutral Milk Hotel, mm-hmm. does play those songs at a reunion tour. They find themselves on stage at Coachella playing to 80,000 people. Mm-hmm. You know, my God, when Greg and I saw them, if there were 100 people in the room, that was a lot. You know, what insights can you give us on why he came back and then went back to his life again? And what is life like for him now? What does he do? Yeah. The way that he sort of worked his way back into it was by just very slowly dipping his toes in the water. One of the more serendipitous parts of of my own research was uh, way back in 2008, the Elephant Six had put together this, what they were calling the Holiday Surprise Tour, where 25 of them would caravan from from city to city and play for hours. And between every couple songs, everybody was, you know, trading instruments and subbing in and subbing out. And it was like, it was like watching a hockey game in some ways. It was just, it was Hmm. just constant activity for hours and hours and hours. This was like just a few months after I had sort of conceived of this project at all. And I figured like, oh, this will be a great idea to go kind of work the room and see if anybody's even really interested in me doing this. Because if they're not, if they're not open to it, then this might not even be worth pursuing. Just a few days before I was driving out to Pittsburgh, the tour was in New York City and Jeff Mangum showed up. I think he drummed on one of the songs and sang a harmony on another song, but he was just like kind of in the atmosphere at the time. And so I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's really significant. But you know, there's like, he lives in New York. There's no way he's going to be in Pittsburgh. That's that's so far away and blah, blah, blah. So I, I went out to Pittsburgh, not expecting him there, and then was surprised to see him there. When I was just kind of like waiting outside for, for the doors to open, I saw him like milling about with everybody and was originally booked as a music tapes and circulatory system tour. Um, and then once that was booked, everybody just decided like, oh, you know, I'd love to come. And, you know, they ended up with like 20, 25 people and different, different sort of lineups at every different date. But um, at this date in Pittsburgh, you know, they performed for a couple hours, took an intermission to show a film, played for another couple hours, did an encore, did a second encore. By this point, it's like one in the morning. The venue is is half empty at this point. It had been sold out, but like, I don't know if that venue even holds 200, 250 people. And by this point, there's probably less than 100. The music tapes, having seen them, had a way of driving people out of a room. <laughs> I swear the snow is So after the second encore, I'm kind of just like loitering because I'm expecting the opportunity to like to talk to folks and just kind of float this idea of, you know, how would you feel if somebody tried to write a book about this? And that's when Julian from the Music Tapes and Jeff walk out, um, not onto the stage, but kind of into the middle of the uh, into the floor. And they set up a couple folding chairs. The remaining people in the crowd just sort of formed a little circle around them. And Jeff played one song. He played a song called Engine, which dates back to before uh, Aeroplane, um, with Julian playing Singing Saw with him. And it was it was the very first time that he performed in public in the United States in about a decade. For I- 
I just happened to be standing 10 feet away from it. And in Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh yeah. Places, yeah, which, which has no real significance in this, in this book in any other way. It was really one of the most transcendent experiences in my life, if I'm being honest. And then it was over, but it was, it was really that, that, that holiday surprise performance that made him feel like, okay, this is, this is not as bad as I maybe was expecting it to be. It's like, you know, when, when you're, when you're, when you're at the pool and the, you dip your toe in the water and it's freezing cold, you're like, I don't want to dive in. But then once you actually get wet, you don't want to get out of the pool again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, did he enjoy the reunion tour when it happened? The full blown reunion tour? I think so. I think because of the expectations of being away for 15 years and not to mention, you know, there's a lot more money on the line right now. 4,000 person theater where everybody paid 50 bucks to get in or headlining Coachella or whatever. Uh, yeah. There's a lot more writing on it, and so there's there's yeah. Well, Robert of old people, because he always struck me as the most pro-minded. He wanted to make money to buy gear, right. not not to be rich. Yeah. He wanted to make money to buy. You know, the little observations you make. The nice thing about the reunion tour when Neutral Milk Hotel did it is they could all get their horns worked on <laughs> and various instruments. Could, you know, because there was this ramshackle feel to yeah. those bands when I saw them, like Salvation you know, Army. The stuff. clarinet had a split reed, and yeah. there was not they were going to do so they were still going to play the right. clarinet but it sounded like ass you know <laughs> and then now well now they had gear <laughs> right. the majority of any of those crowds were people who had listened to the record dozens hundreds thousands of times and felt that deep deep connection to it and so i think he felt an obligation to uh sort of recreate the album in that way and so they had sound guys they had uh mm -hmm. you know they had tuners for the first time. They had yeah. hotel rooms. Jeff was very uh, serious about delivering their best every night. And so, you know, there was no alcohol permitted backstage. He didn't want anybody having a hangover and, and spoiling a show that way. Uh, Scott Spillane, who played uh, guitar and, and horns in that band, told me, you know, they were they were having a picnic or something on the tour one day. And he suggested, like, why don't we go roll over in that tall grass for a while? Because, um, you know, they're all just giant children <laughs> in that way. They're hippies. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And Jeff said, you know, when the tour is over, I will roll around in the grass with you to your heart's content. But right now, um, I think they were in New York at the time, which Lyme disease is a pretty prevalent thing up there. He's like, if, I, if we have to cancel this tour or cancel some shows because someone has Lyme disease, that will disappoint a lot of people. It will destroy the livelihoods of a lot of people. Wait till the tour is over, basically. And so like, you know, he, he took yeah. vocal cord training to make sure that he could deliver those mm. those long sustained uh notes vocally which he had never really done before he really really took it seriously for sure it's interesting too because i feel like the more distant we get from that era you know people say oh we you know we want more music and i i, I feel like it's they, they got to be daunted by that it's kind of like the replacements thing like you're placing your whole legacy on the line and you you saw what happened with a band like the pixies or even my bloody valentine when they tried to go back and Ain't the same. We're yeah. gonna do this kind of the way we did it 30 years ago, and it was there. It was that moment. And they all seemed to be in a different place. That clubhouse is gone, you know, and you got to acknowledge that at some point, right? Yeah, I think to, to some extent that's true. And you know, you, you really you can't step into the same river twice, right? It's everything's different now, even if the people are the same. But they are all older. They've had all kinds of life experiences. You know, different people have different different thoughts on this for sure. But I think, generally speaking, there is some regret. I think not necessarily about not cashing in, but, you know, some of these guys live very, very modestly to this day. Um, and certainly none of them have really been able to reap any financial rewards from this experience. And money started to, to drive mm. people apart a little bit and, and really exposes differences in philosophy. And, and before that enters the picture, 
it's a lot easier to find common ground. Um, and once money comes into the picture and you start having to divide it up and figure out who gets what, that's when the, the real tension starts to reveal itself. Well, the enduring legacy, the music lives on. I think that attitude is inspiring. I think it's Robert who puts it as if you just just delete money from the equation, you can live a productive and satisfactory life, <laughs> you know. Uh, but which you is, still have to pay the rent. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, as Professor's son, and he's a yeah. dad and everything yeah. else. But uh, you made it almost sound like they were unhappy. But I, I gather that they're they're happy living life now, and they're proud of what they've accomplished. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think there's there's a lot of unhappiness necessarily, um, and I certainly think there there are very proud about what they accomplished. I think I don't think there's any delusions about, you know, the impact that they've made. They're proud to the extent that they set out with a goal and they exceeded mm-hmm. that goal. Um, but as modest as that goal may have been, um, you know, it's a, it's a sensible, achievable yeah. goal and they achieved it. What I think people can really take away from this story is just the, the model for, for art making that it sort of offers. Cause you know, this is a really beautiful model of how, community can can foster art and how art can foster community how those two things are sort of symbiotic in that way and um you know i do want to note i i, I don't want this to sound like we should all just accept <laughs> that artists are criminally underpaid um i certainly think that that if not every single artist almost every artist who has uploaded a song to spotify is more deserving of of their payday than than daniel eck or anybody that's a, a shareholder with spotify right. i i, I it, it, it breaks my heart that that yeah, that, but you're talking about motivation. Exactly, you set exactly. out to get rich. I'm going to make music to get rich. You know, you're doomed from that mm-hmm. get go, right? It's a Which is idea. different yeah. than saying I'm going to make music because I love these people. I'm going to make music with, mm-hmm. and if we reach some people, well, great. You know, and then if you do reach people, you deserve to get paid. Sure, I, I, that's what I took away from Endless Endless. It inspired me uh, anew. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you for yeah. writing it. Endless Absolutely. Endless, a lo-fi history of the Elephant Six mystery. Thirteen years in the making, indeed. And here it is. Thank you so much, Adam, for being on the show. Uh, thank you both. Honestly, this is really a privilege. that wraps up our conversation and now we want to hear from you do you have thoughts on elephant six did you see neutral milk hotel back in the 90s when you could count on one hand the number of people at the show leave a voice message on our website soundopinions.org mr cott what do we have on the show next week Next week, Jim, we're going to dig deep for some more buried treasures, songs underneath the mainstream radar that we think you need to hear about. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed where contributor Althea Legaspi pays tribute to the recently deceased Cynthia Plastercaster. Somebody will miss at Chicago area shows, Greg. Absolutely. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, our intern, Mary Bernthal, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 